Chapter Nine of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Nine. Welbeck did not return, though hour succeeded hour till the clock struck ten. I inquired of the servants, who informed me that their master was not accustomed to stay out so late. I seated myself at a table in a parlour on which there stood a light, and listened for the signal of his coming either by the sound of steps on the pavement without, or by a peal from the bell. The silence was uninterrupted and profound, and each minute added to my sum of impatience and anxiety. To relieve myself from the heat of the weather, which was aggravated by the condition of my thoughts, as well as to beguile this tormenting interval, it occurred to me to betake myself to the bath. I left the candle where it stood, and imagined that even in the bath I should hear the sound of the bell, which would be rung upon his arrival at the door. No such signal occurred, and after taking this refreshment, I prepared to return to my post. The parlour was still unoccupied, but this was not all. The candle I had left upon the table was gone. This was an inexplicable circumstance. On my promise to wait for their master, the servants had retired to bed. No signal of any one's entrance had been given. The street door was locked, and the key hung at its customary place upon the wall. What was I to think? It was obvious to suppose that the candle had been removed by a domestic, but their footsteps could not be traced, and I was not sufficiently acquainted with the house to find the way, especially immersed in darkness, to their chamber. One measure, however, it was evidently proper to take, which was to supply myself anew with a light. This was instantly performed, but what was next to be done? I was weary of the perplexities in which I was embroiled. I saw no avenue to escape from them but that which led me to the bosom of nature and to my ancient occupations. For a moment I was tempted to resume my rustic garb and on that very hour to desert this habitation. One thing only detained me, the desire to apprise my patron of the treachery of Thetford. For this end I was anxious to obtain an interview, but now I reflected that this information could by other means be imparted. Was it not sufficient to write him briefly these particulars, and leave him to profit by the knowledge? Thus I might likewise acquaint him with my motives for thus abruptly and unseasonably deserting his service. To the execution of this scheme pen and paper were necessary. The business of writing was performed in the chamber on the third floor. I had been hitherto denied access to this room. In it was a show of papers and books. Here it was that the task for which I had been retained was to be performed, but I was to enter it and leave it only in company with Welbeck. For what reasons, I asked, was this procedure to be adopted? The influence of prohibitions and an appearance of disguise in awakening curiosity is well known. My mind fastened upon the idea of this room with an unusual degree of intenseness. I had seen it but for a moment. Many of Welbeck's hours were spent in it. It was not to be inferred that they were consumed in idleness. What, then, was the nature of his employment over which a veil of such impenetrable secrecy was cast? 
Will you wonder that the design of entering this recess was insensibly formed? Possibly it was locked, but its accessibleness was likewise possible. I meant not the commission of any crime. My principal purpose was to procure the implements of writing, which were elsewhere not to be found. I should neither unseal papers nor open drawers. I would merely take a survey of the volumes and attend to the objects that spontaneously presented themselves to my view. In this there surely was nothing criminal or blameworthy. Meanwhile I was not unmindful of the sudden disappearance of the candle. This incident filled my bosom with the inquietudes of fear and the perturbations of wonder. Once more I paused to catch any sound that might arise from without. All was still. I seized the candle and prepared to mount the stairs. I had not reached the first landing when I called to mind my midnight meeting with Welbeck at the door of his daughter's chamber. The chamber was now desolate. Perhaps it was accessible. If so, no injury was done by entering it. My curiosity was strong, but it pictured to itself no precise object. Three steps would bear me to the door. The trial, whether it was fastened, might be made in a moment, and I readily imagined that something might be found within to reward the trouble of examination. The door yielded to my hand, and I entered. No remarkable object was discoverable. The apartment was supplied with the usual furniture. I bent my steps towards a table over which a mirror was suspended. My glances, which roved with swiftness from, my glances, which roved with swiftness from one object to another, shortly lighted on a miniature portrait that hung near. I scrutinized it with eagerness. It was impossible to overlook its resemblance to my own visage. This was so great that for a moment I imagined myself to have been the original from which it had been drawn. This flattering conception yielded place to a belief merely of similitude between me and the genuine original. The thoughts which this opinion was fitted to produce were suspended by a new object. A small volume that had apparently been much used lay upon the toilet. I opened it and found it to contain some of the dramas of Apostolo Zeno. I turned over the leaves, a written paper saluted my sight. A single glance informed me that it was English. For the present I was insensible to all motives that would command me to forbear. I seized the paper with an intention to peruse it. At that moment a stunning report was heard. It was loud enough to shake the walls of the apartment, and abrupt enough to throw me into tremors. I dropped the book and yielded for a moment to confusion and surprise. From what quarter it came I was unable accurately to determine, but there could be no doubt from its loudness that it was near and even in the house. It was no less manifest that the sound arose from the discharge of a pistol. Some hand must have drawn the trigger. I recollected the disappearance of the candle from the room below. Instantly a supposition darted into my mind which made my hair rise and my teeth chatter. This, I said, is the deed of Welbeck. He entered while I was absent from the room, he hied to his chamber, and prompted by some unknown instigation, has inflicted on himself death. 
This idea had a tendency to palsy my limbs and my thoughts. Some time passed in painful and tumultuous fluctuation. My aversion to this catastrophe, rather than a belief of being, by that means able to prevent or repair the evil, induced me to attempt to enter his chamber. It was possible that my conjectures were erroneous. The door of his room was locked. I knocked. I demanded entrance in a low voice. I put my eye and ear to the keyhole and the crevices. Nothing could be heard or seen. It was unavoidable to conclude that no one was within, yet the effluvia of gunpowder was perceptible. Perhaps the room above had been the scene of this catastrophe. I ascended the second flight of stairs. I approached the door. No sound could be caught by my most vigilant attention. I put out the light that I carried, and was then able to perceive that there was a light within the room. I scarcely knew how to act. For some minutes I paused at the door. I spoke and requested permission to enter. My words were succeeded by a death-like stillness. At length I ventured softly to withdraw the bolt, to open and to advance within the room. Nothing could exceed the horror of my expectation, yet I was startled by the scene that I beheld. In a chair, whose back was placed against the front wall, sat Welbeck. My entrance alarmed him not, nor roused him from the stupor into which he was plunged. He rested his hands upon his knees, and his eyes were riveted to something that lay, at the distance of a few feet before him, on the floor. A second glance was sufficient to inform me of what nature this object was. It was the body of a man, bleeding, ghastly, and still exhibiting the marks of convulsion and agony. I shall omit to describe the shock which a spectacle like this communicated to my unpractised senses. I was nearly as panic-struck and powerless as Welbeck himself. I gazed without power of speech at one time at Welbeck, then I fixed terrified eyes on the distorted features of the dead. At length Welbeck, recovering from his reverie, looked up as if to see who it was that had entered. No surprise, no alarm was betrayed by him on seeing me. He manifested no desire or intention to interrupt the fearful silence. My thoughts wandered in confusion and terror. The first impulse was to fly from the scene, but I could not be long insensible to the exigences of the moment. I saw that affairs must not be suffered to remain in their present situation. The insensibility or despair of Welbeck required consolation and succor. How to communicate my thoughts or offer my assistance I knew not. What led to this murderous catastrophe— who it was whose breathless corpse was before me, what concern Welbeck had in producing his death, were as yet unknown. At length he rose from his seat, and strode at first with faltering, and then with more steadfast steps, across the floor. This motion seemed to put him in possession of himself. He seemed now for the first time to recognize my presence— he turned to me and said, in a tone of severity, "'How now? What brings you here?' This rebuke was unexpected. I stammered out in reply that the report of the pistol had alarmed me, and that I came to discover the cause of it. 
He noticed not my answer, but resumed his perturbed steps and his anxious but abstracted looks. Suddenly he checked himself, and glancing a furious eye at the corpse, he muttered, "'Yes, the die is cast. This worthless and miserable scene shall last no longer. I will at once get rid of life and all its humiliations.' Here succeeded a new pause." The course of his thoughts seemed now to become once more tranquil. Sadness rather than fury overspread his features, and his accent, when he spoke to me, was not faltering but solemn. "'Mervyn,' said he, "'you comprehend not this scene. Your youth and inexperience make you a stranger to a deceitful and flagitious world. You know me not.' It is time that this ignorance should vanish. The knowledge of me and of my actions may be of use to you. It may teach you to avoid the shoals on which my virtue and my peace have been wrecked. But to the rest of mankind it can be of no use. The ruin of my fame is perhaps irretrievable, but the height of my iniquity need not be known. I perceive in you a rectitude and firmness worthy to be trusted. Promise me, therefore, that not a syllable of what I tell you shall ever pass your lips. I had lately experienced the inconvenience of a promise, but I was now confused, embarrassed, ardently inquisitive as to the nature of this scene, and unapprised of the motives that might afterwards occur persuading or compelling me to disclosure. The promise which he exacted was given. He resumed. I have detained you in my service, partly for your own benefit, but chiefly for mine. I intended to inflict upon you injury and to do you good. Neither of these ends can I now accomplish, unless the lessons which my example may inculcate shall inspire you with fortitude and arm you with caution. What it was that made me thus I know not. I am not destitute of understanding." My thirst of knowledge, though irregular, is ardent. I can talk and can feel as virtue and justice prescribe, yet the tenor of my actions has been uniform. One tissue of iniquity and folly has been my life, while my thoughts have been familiar with enlightened and disinterested principles. Scorn and detestation I have heaped upon myself. Yesterday is remembered with remorse. Tomorrow is contemplated with anguish and fear, yet every day is productive of the same crimes and of the same follies. I was left by the insolvency of my father, a trader of Liverpool, without any means of support but such as labor should afford me. Whatever could generate pride and the love of independence was my portion." Whatever can incite to diligence was the growth of my condition, yet my indolence was a cureless disease, and there were no arts too sordid for me to practice. I was content to live on the bounty of a kinsman. His family was numerous and his revenue small. He forbore to upbraid me or even to insinuate the propriety of providing for myself, but he empowered me to pursue any liberal or mechanical profession which might suit my taste. I was insensible to every generous motive. 
I labored to forget my dependent and disgraceful condition because the remembrance was a source of anguish, without being able to inspire me with a steady resolution to change it. I contracted an acquaintance with a woman who was unchaste, perverse, and malignant. Me, however, she found it no difficult task to deceive. My uncle remonstrated against the union. He took infinite pains to unveil my error and to convince me that wedlock was improper for one destitute as I was of the means of support, even if the object of my choice were personably unexceptionable. His representations were listened to with anger. That he thwarted my will in this respect, even by affectionate expostulation, cancelled all that debt of gratitude which I owed to him. I rewarded him for all his kindness by invective and disdain, and hastened to complete my ill-omened marriage. I had deceived the woman's father by assertions of possessing secret resources. To gratify my passion, I descended to dissimulation and falsehood. He admitted me into his family as the husband of his child, but the character of my wife and the fallacy of my assertions were quickly discovered. He denied me accommodation under his roof, and I was turned forth to the world to endure the penalty of my rashness and my indolence. Temptation would have molded me into any villainous shape. My virtuous theories and comprehensive erudition would not have saved me from the basest of crimes. Luckily for me, I was, for the present, exempted from temptation. I had formed an acquaintance with a young American captain. On being partially informed of my situation, he invited me to embark with him for his own country. My passage was gratuitous. I arrived in a short time at Charleston, which was the place of his abode. He introduced me to his family, every member of which was, like himself, imbued with affection and benevolence. I was treated like their son and brother. I was hospitably entertained until I should be able to select some path of lucrative industry. Such was my incurable depravity that I made no haste to select my pursuit. An interval of inoccupation succeeded which I applied to the worst purposes. My friend had a sister who was married, but during the absence of her husband resided with her family. Hence originated our acquaintance. The purest of human hearts and the most vigorous understanding were hers. She idolized her husband, who well deserved to be the object of her adoration. Her affection for him and her general principles appeared to be confirmed beyond the power to be shaken. I sought her intercourse without illicit views. I delighted in the effusions of her candor and the flashes of her intelligence. I conformed by a kind of instinctive hypocrisy to her views. I spoke and felt from the influence of immediate and momentary conviction." She imagined she had found in me a friend worthy to partake in all her sympathies and forward all her wishes. We were mutually deceived. She was the victim of self-delusion, but I must charge myself with practicing deceit both upon myself and her. 
I reflect with astonishment and horror on the steps which led to her degradation and to my calamity. In the high career of passion, all consequences were overlooked. She was the dupe of the most audacious sophistry and the grossest delusion. I was the slave of sensual impulses and voluntary blindness. The effect may be easily conceived. Not till symptoms of pregnancy began to appear were our eyes opened to the ruin which impended over us. Then I began to revolve the consequences which the mist of passion had hitherto concealed. I was tormented by the pangs of remorse and pursued by the phantom of ingratitude. To complete my despair, this unfortunate lady was apprised of my marriage with another woman, a circumstance which I had anxiously concealed from her. She fled from her father's house at a time when her husband and brother were hourly expected. What became of her I knew not. She left behind her a letter to her father in which the melancholy truth was told. Shame and remorse had no power over my life. To elude the storm of invective and upbraiding, to quiet the uproar of my mind, I did not betake myself to voluntary death. My pusillanimity still clung to this wretched existence. I abruptly retired from the scene, and repairing to the port, embarked in the first vessel which appeared. The ship chanced to belong to Wilmington in Delaware, and here I sought out an obscure and cheap abode. I possessed no means of subsistence. I was unknown to my neighbors, and desired to remain unknown. I was unqualified for manual labor by all habits of my life. But there was no choice between penury and diligence, between honest labor and criminal inactivity. I mused incessantly on the forlornness of my condition. Hour after hour passed, and the horrors of want began to encompass me. I sought with eagerness for an avenue by which I might escape from it. The perverseness of my nature led me on from one guilty thought to another. I took refuge in my customary sophistries and reconciled myself at length to a scheme of forgery. End of chapter 9